Praise the Lord. Well, um, let's get started. Let's just jump right in. Uh, I'd love for you to turn back to the book of Malachi. Back in May, uh, we, we uh, had a message uh, probably about mid-May called Allowing Your Hearts to be Turned. Allowing our hearts to be turned. And, and we talked out of this scripture, Malachi, that I'm about to read to you again. So if you're hearing it again, don't walk out and say, well, I heard this message and I'm leaving. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take a different direction. Although, let me just say, if we were to preach the same message, you guys would be okay with that, right? I'm not going to, but you'd be okay with it, right? Because, you know, Jesus said a lot of the same things over and over again. We need to hear some of the same things over and over again. Uh, but, you know, uh, I know some of you are... Uh, Pushing this off as, as long as you can. Some of you embraced it way too early, the fact that Christmas is coming, right? Some of you were listening in August or September when we first got the first bits of snow you already had. The weather outside is frightful, right? You were doing all of that. Believe me, I, I just drove to Washington in November listening to holiday traditions all the way there. <laughs> Because that's what my wife likes, and so that's what I like. <laughs> nothing, nothing that was performed past 1950 need apply. This is the music we're listening to. So I'm, in, I'm ready for Christmas, guys. I'm ready. I've already had one. Uh, but... Uh, you know, and, and I, I'm not one of these people that thinks we have to always preach messages seasonally. But I do believe this is a good time for us to think about, uh, you know, traditionally the, the, the church has celebrated Advent and then Epiphany. And the idea of Advent was expecting the coming of the Lord and Epiphany was celebrating the coming of the Lord. Well, here we are on this side of the New Testament. We know that Jesus has come. Uh, but there's something wonderful about reminding ourselves that, that we are to be in a state of expectation for what God has promised all the time. God has promised, you know, let's just take a big one. Jesus promised he'll return, right? And so what does it mean to live in expectation of the return of Christ? That's a big promise that we can all say we have a part in. But there's other things that God has said, that God has promised, that God has ahead of us that we aren't even aware of, haven't even entered our heart or our mind. And God doesn't just spring these things on you and take you by surprise. If you are paying attention, he wants to prepare you for things. I truly believe that before every great thing that God will do in your life, he wants to prepare your heart first. Let's just think about it. Think about it. Before God would give, you know, when God met that widow's need, there was a widow in the Old Testament who was dying. She was starving to death. And God had supply for her. She didn't know about it, but God had provision for her. God had prepared something for her. But when he sent the prophet and, and he took her last meal, which seems like a mean thing to do, but it turns out it was her path to blessing. Uh, she, she blessed the prophet of God. She shared her meal with him. And then he said, go get as many vessels as you can get. Right? Go borrow from your neighbors. Go ask them for as many jars and pots and vases and vats. Find as many vessels as you can get. Because once you get those, I'm going to pour out oil in them. Actually, he didn't tell her what he was going to do. He just told her to borrow these vessels. And when she did, they were all filled. God didn't give her more than the vessels could contain, and he didn't give her less. I mean, I, if I were that lady, I would have been kicking myself that I didn't borrow one more. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. God filled what she was prepared for. 
What she was prepared for, God filled. You know, and, 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 and a lot of times we're just living so much in the moment that we're like, God, meet my need now. God, do this now. And, and often God is trying to prepare you for things that are to come because you're not quite ready for them yet. You got to be prepared. You got to be listening. And, and, and when he sent the Messiah, when he sent Jesus, let's not forget they had hundreds of years of prophets telling them to get ready. And if that weren't enough, they had a, a, a weird uh, a hillbilly, bug-eating, strange, bad breath, B.O. guy in the middle of the wilderness preaching at them, telling them to repent, dunking them in water and saying, this will make you clean, which we all get because we do baptisms. But imagine if you've never seen a baptism before. And this guy says, I will dunk you under the water. Hold your breath. I'll dunk you under this dirty water. And when you come up, you'll be clean. You won't have any more sin. Who's going to say, yeah, okay, sure, that sounds reasonable. He's the first guy to do it. But before Jesus could come, John the Baptist had to come. And why is that? We, we, we often wonder, why wasn't it enough what Jesus was going to preach? Couldn't Jesus prepare people's hearts? Couldn't he tell them to get ready? Absolutely. But, but God had to send a prophet first. God had to send someone to prepare hearts, to turn hearts. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, what God's doing to prepare your heart for what's ahead. God's, what God's doing to prepare his people's hearts for, for the things that he has in store for us. Because if our hearts aren't prepared, there's a good chance we'll be like the Pharisees who know all the scriptures but miss the point entirely. Who do all of the right church stuff, do all of the right religious stuff, and yet whose hearts are far from God. Remember when God said that? He said, your, your lips, you worship me. You guys are great at singing songs. He says, you guys are great at saying the right things. You guys sound like people who love God. But he says, your hearts are far from me. Have you ever considered that someone could walk into this building and think that everybody in the building is, is, is passionate for Jesus because we know what it looks like to act passionate for Jesus, but we never want to get to the place where we're doing the thing without our heart being there, right? Believe me, I grew up in church. I know how easy it is to do the things that look like I'm on fire without, feel, without really being there without letting my heart be turned. And, and I, I believe that God wants to soften our hearts. And I, I believe that that's not just a one-time thing. I believe that's a lifetime thing of God keeping our hearts soft, of us allowing our hearts to be turned and softened. See, for the next three weeks, we're, today we're going to talk about the restoration of your heart. Then we want to talk about the enlarging of your heart. And then we want to talk about the strengthening of your heart. And all these things are important for what God has ahead of us. So today I want to talk a little bit about uh, God restoring your heart. Maybe you are a new believer. You just came in here. We're all a little weird. You're just trying to find your place. And yet you desire God. You, 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 you feel like you brought all this baggage, but you want to lay it at the feet of the cross. You want to lay it at the feet of Jesus. Well, the promise for you is this. He said, I'll take your hard heart and I'll give you a new heart. And it'll, it won't be a heart of stone. It'll be a heart of flesh. What does that tell you? See, a, a petrified heart is not a heart at all, is it? It really can't, it can't function. The heart of flesh, that's, that's a heart that can be used, that, that's functional. If any part of you were petrified, turned into stone, it would no longer be useful for anything. We think it would be stronger, right? 
Man, if I had a fist of steel, if you had a fist of steel, how would you eat cereal in the morning? Because the superheroes that have fists of steel can bend that fist of steel, but you know you couldn't. Fist of steel, you just clonk, clonk, clonk. You know, just try it for a day. Pull your arm back into your sleeve and put a steel hand on it. See how well you function. God designed us so that our parts are flexible, moldable, that they can change and adapt to the situation. And we think it's really the strongest we can be is to be unmovable and fixed. But God says we're to be immovable in him, but we are still alive in him. In fact, he says those that are led by the Spirit, those that are um, uh, full of the Spirit and born of the Spirit, he said you won't even know where they're coming from and where they're going because they're blown by his wind. So these aren't people that are stuck in a rut. These are people that are moving with God. They're not flaky. They're not tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine, but they're invigorated. They're made alive by the Spirit. Imagine, okay, let's just picture this. In our day and age, John the Baptist coming. So a preacher shows up in town, and he starts telling people, you guys think your hearts are close to God, but I got news for you. They're not as close as you want. But, but I have good news here in that God is offering us a chance to turn. He's, he's giving us a, a path back. He's saying, come back to me and I'll come back to you. He's saying, if you'll, if you'll make straight paths, there's something ahead that you can't even imagine. It's so good. And imagine the people that are showing up to hear this guy are, are the, the first group of people are the people that kind of go to every meeting. They just show up at stuff and, and they go, well, this guy's loud, I like loud, and so they show up. The next group of people are, are people that are starting to hear that, that those rabble-rousers that went at first, when they came back, they were different. It wasn't just a meeting, something changed with them. They said, when I got baptized, I came up different. They said, that, what that guy said rung true to me. My heart's different now. There's something different in me, and I'm living different. Then a third group of people show up, the preachers. But imagine in this town, pretty much all of the preachers are just people that are so stuck and so bitter and so arrogant that, that the only reason they're going to this meeting is because they want to be seen at this meeting. Because now this is the cool place to be. When it started out, it wasn't. I mean, when this guy showed up in town, uh, he was the, the guy you didn't want to hang around. But now that the crowds are there, they show up. John the Baptist looks at them. And the Bible tells us he looks at them and he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up. The Pharisees were very religious people. They lived by the book. And if we were to be honest, living by the book seems like a good thing, right? I mean, the book was the Bible. <laughs> I mean, it, it was the word of God. We're not just talking about living by, you know, a dead book. They were living by the word of God. Of course, their word of God had like a bunch of other chapters added to it. Because it was the word of God plus, right? It was the word of God plus all of the other rules that they made to add to the word of God. Because that wasn't enough. But they lived by the book. Now, the Sadducees, they didn't really live by the book. Sadducees were a different group altogether. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe there was life after death. They didn't believe in miracles. They were just the nice church going, we believe there's a God, we don't believe he messes with us too much, political, move through life in high society kind of people. But all these two groups showed up at the meeting because they figured this is the place to be. John looks at them. 
And maybe for a minute they think he's going to invite us up. He's going to say, see, finally we all agree. Maybe he's going to invite us up and ask us to baptize some people because, hey, we're clean. But instead, he looks at them and says, you bunch of snakes. You bunch of snakes. Who told you about this meeting? You had posters up. at. <laughs> You're not exactly quiet, John. You're yelling all over the place. I knew the meeting was happening. He says, who told you about this? Then he tells them, he says, you know, if you've really repented, you should bear some fruits in accordance to re with repentance. You, sh you should really bear some fruits. Now, that seems like a weird thing because that seems like, you know, we haven't even got baptized yet. We, we haven't even got dunked yet. I, I thought we were supposed to be better when we got out of the water. We haven't gone into the water yet. He says, if you're really for real, you'd see it in your life. Now, let me ask you something. What's he looking for in them because those Pharisees, let's be honest, for all their flaws, they actually weren't doing things that we would see as bad things all the time. They weren't robbing people. They weren't beating people up. They weren't swearing or smoking. Or they weren't doing anything that anybody would call bad. These were nice. Well, I don't know if they were nice. But they were keeping the rules. You see, when we think of repentance, we all think of, like, stop doing the really bad things. Right? Repent, sinners. If I just said, repent sinners, would you immediately look at the most religious people in the room? <laughs> the people who are never seen around the bad places. They never watch PG-13 movies. The people who don't even hang around with people who smell like cannabis. Those people. <laughs> right? Like, they're not even in the alleys to get that smell on them. They're not in the grocery store where those people shop. They shop at the better grocery store. <laughs> and you look at them and you go, you guys aren't repenting. The, the folks at the river, you got like, you got the, the guy that have, starts a fight every Saturday night in the bar. He's at the river. John's not yelling at him. You got, you got the guy that's got like, you know, three girls on the side. You know, he's, he's, he's kind of playing the field. He's at the river. John's not yelling at him. The only people John yells at are the people that kind of seem like they have their life together. So that kind of blows our idea of repentance up a little bit, doesn't it? Because my idea of repentance is always like, you know, stop being so bad. But maybe the repentance that John is looking for. Now listen, don't. Don't get me wrong here. When they ask him, what do those fruits look like? He goes, hey, stop stealing. He says, hey, hey, he's, you know, stop lying to each other. I mean, he does give you some pretty basic things. But the Pharisees weren't guilty of those things. They were guilty of something actually more damaging, which was a hardening of the heart that was so far from God that they couldn't hear the word of God. So repentance for them, repentance for them was not, you know, stop cheating on your wife. Repentance for them was not stop beating up your kids. Repentance for them was let your heart be turned back to God. Let your heart be softened. And John was able to say, I, I look at your life and for all of the things you say and all the things you do, there's no proof in your life that you love God or that you have any desire to know him. I want to read you back in Malachi. This is where we were starting today. This last promise. This was the promise about John the Baptist. And I said this back in May, but I'll say it again. 
This is the last word in the Old Testament, and it's really the first word in the New Testament. If you went chronologically, the first thing to happen in the New Testament was an angel appearing to Zechariah. And what did the angel say? Your son's going to be the guy that Malachi talked about. Malachi says this, verse 5 of Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Skip on to Luke for a minute here and see what the angel says to Zechariah. Zechariah is John the Baptist's father. He's a priest in the temple and he's doing his duty because it's, it's his job that year to serve in the temple. And an angel meets him. He's far too old to have kids. His wife's too old to have kids. They've never been able to conceive. And the angel says to him in verse 15, he's talking about John, his son. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children to the, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I know I've asked this question before, but it's a question that sticks with me all my life. Am I prepared for the Lord? I have the Lord. I know the Lord. I love the Lord. Am I prepared for the Lord? Am I prepared for what he's doing? Am I prepared for what he's saying? Am I prepared for where he wants to move me? Am I prepared for where he wants to lead me? The angel said to John's father that, He's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. You know, a lot of us think that the power of Elijah was miracles, right? But how many miracles did John the Baptist do? None that we know of. There's zero miracles recorded in the Bible of John the Baptist. Other than this miracle, when he spoke, people's hearts turned. That's the greatest miracle. I thank God for a hand growing back. Thank God for the dead being raised physically. But spiritually for someone who's dead and, and, and hardened and stuck to come back and be turned back to God, that's the greatest miracle anyone could ever witness because that's a spiritual resurrection. That's a powerful thing. He's going to come back in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he's going to turn people back. Now, you, Elijah, if you watch... Elijah came to a nation that had completely hardened themselves towards God. They were so hard towards God that they were openly worshiping another God. Jezebel had come in to the scene. Jezebel and Ahab had been working together. Uh, basically, it seems like to me that Jezebel basically told Ahab what to do, and Ahab did it. And, and there's many times where you see Elijah straight up tell the king, here's what you need to do. But there's other times where he speaks to the nation on that mountain, that mountain where he calls down fire from heaven. Remember what Elijah said. You guys got to choose. Remember what he said? You guys got to choose. Choose him. Watch, today you choose who you're going to serve. And if this God is real, you serve him. 
when we think of the miracles of Elijah, we think of the fire coming down. We think of, you know, rain being stopped and then rain starting again. We think of him going up in a chariot of fire at the end. There's some great miracles in the life of Elijah, but there's a, an amazing miracle of him standing up on that mountain and, and looking at a whole nation and saying, guys, this is your moment to choose something. If I want to I, I say that I, I would like to believe I listened to Jesus. I believe I listened to Jesus. But I want to get better at listening to the John the Baptist that go before Jesus. You know, I, 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 I believe I'm ready to hear the good news. I also want to hear what God has to say before he, the things that he's prepared for me, where he says, you need to prepare your heart. Come back. Soften your heart again. Let your heart be drawn back to God. See, there's two things in the restoration of our hearts that God wants to do. And these are things that Jesus talks about in the Gospels very much. Uh, what, the first thing is that our hearts would be softened. How many times did Jesus say your, heart, your hearts are hard, right? He said that the hearts of these people are hard so they don't understand. He didn't say they don't understand because they're dumb. Because in fact, he turned to the disciples and said, you guys, God's granted it to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. So you didn't get it because you were smarter. You got it because your hearts were soft and, and, and God granted you to know this stuff. He said, their eyes were closed, their ears were closed, their hearts were hard. And, and all throughout this, you know, there's times where they're fishing and, and, and they're about to die. I mean, they're going across in the boat and they think they're going to die. And Jesus says, like, don't you remember the miracles I've done? Or has your heart become hardened? Before you see the miracle of tomorrow, it's, it's, it's great to see miracles from yesterday. But miracles from yesterday aren't going to carry you through. Miracles of yesterday are, are meant to build your faith. They're meant to strengthen you. They're meant to give you thanksgiving. They're meant to remind you who God is. But if you harden your heart, yesterday's miracles won't do a thing. If we're looking for what God's got in front of us, your heart needs to stay soft. Listen, the disciples had soft hearts when he talked to them just a few days before that moment. Remember, I'm going to go off on a little rabbit trail if that's okay. They're in the boat. They think they're going to die. There's another moment. They're in the boat. They think they ran out of bread. Remember that? Yeah. We ran out of food. And it was, they were leaving the location where Jesus fed thousands of people and they're freaked out that they forgot food, right? <laughs> Jesus says to them, don't you remember how, much, how many people I just fed? Twice. Do you remember that? Yeah, we remember. He goes, so are your hearts hard? Now, what's crazy about that is it hasn't been that long since he said to them, it's only been a little while since he said to them, you guys have soft hearts. You guys have eyes that are open. You guys have ears that are open. Blessed are your eyes because they see what they see. Blessed are your ears because you hear what you hear. You're hearing and seeing things that prophets in the Old Testament wish they could have seen. So can we just go ahead and assume that a soft heart doesn't just automatically stay soft forever? John tells people, I'm that voice that God told you about. It's amazing to me in the Old Testament how he said, one of the things I'm going to do is restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers again. You know, the, the, the kids that think that, 
you guys are you guys are old and out of date. You don't know you don't know what's going on in life. You don't have any relevant views. You have nothing to offer us. That those kids' hearts are going to be softened again. That arrogance, that pride is going to be broken. They're going to be humble enough to say, we need your voice in our life. The fathers and the mothers who say, you kids are a bunch of punks. You don't know what you're doing. You haven't been through what I've been through. What do you have to offer? You know what? Sit down, shut up for a while, and wait till you have something to say. Maybe those fathers and mothers are going to look with hearts that are soft again to their kids and go, we need their voice. We need their hands. We need their strength. That somehow when our hearts are restored to God, our hearts are restored to each other. That's amazing. That's amazing. He's going to soften them. I'm going to restore these hearts. I'm going to turn their hearts back to God. Look at, what, look at what the angel said. He said, I'm going to turn the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. Watch that. Before he changed their behavior, he changed their attitude. He changed their heart. He doesn't say, I'm going to take all the bad people and make them do good things. He's going to change them from the inside out. They're going to be different people. You see, that's what he promised back in Ezekiel 36. When he says, Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36, both times, he says, I'm going to take your hearts of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. He says, I'm going to turn your heart back to me. And he tells them, when I do this, you're going to look and you're going to all of a sudden realize, what have we done to God? And you're going to turn from your ways. He doesn't say, turn from your ways and I'll give you a new heart. He says, I'll give you a new heart. And the response, the result of that new heart is you're going to want to turn. I'm going to change your attitude to an attitude of a righteous person, someone who's right with God again. Isn't that what John promised? See, see we kind of remember his, his yelling at the crowds. But remember, the core of what he said was... I'm going to baptize you for the forgiveness of your sins. Something that no one had ever offered them. Previous to that, they'd have to kill something for that. Now, he says, when you get done, you're going to be clean. In fact, that's what he says in Ezekiel 36 as well. He said, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you'll be mine. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I want, to, I want to just stop for a minute and think of what we think about the word repent. Does the word repent make you cringe a little bit? If I were to say, let's have a repentance service, what does that look like to you? See, I bet there are 50 different opinions in this room about what that would look like. Some people, we have to be crying. You have to be crying. There's no repent without, re without tears, there's no repentance. Some people are like, well... Somebody's going to get up and yell at us for a while. <laughs> we have to feel it. I had a, I had a preacher tell me, I had a, a minister tell me one time, he said, we would have, he, they would do it, it was like it was a certain time of year. There were certain days. He belonged to a church that did certain things on certain days. And he goes, it was a certain day every year where the minister would rub our nose and everything. Just, blah, 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 blah. just a certain day of the year. We just rub our nose on what we'd done. Was well, that Repentance. Maybe, but, but it might also just be a nice little guilt service that doesn't do anybody any good. You know, the Bible says the sorrow according to the will of God leads to repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That means when you have repented, deliverance comes. Yeah. 
And when deliverance comes, you stop regretting the past. So if I keep telling you you need to regret it, if you don't regret it, you didn't forget it. If you didn't regret it, you didn't really repent, Eric. Do you feel bad about that? Well, I don't really think about it. You don't think about it? Are you even saved, man? <laughs> Every night before bed, you should be crying about what you did back then. Well, that's not what the Bible tells me. It says the sorrow according to the will of God. And yes, that means that God wants us to feel sorry about that. But the sorrow according to the will of God, what does it do? It leads you to repentance. So when are you supposed to feel sorry? You're supposed to feel sorry when you're stuck in it. You're supposed to say, I don't like this anymore. You're supposed to say, this isn't me. This is not good. You're not supposed to enjoy it. You're supposed to say, this isn't who I am. I'm a child of God. I'm not, what am I doing? Then what do you do? You repent. You turn. Then what does he say? It leads to salvation. Now, salvation is not just getting saved from hell. It's delivered from whatever mess you just made. Deliverance without regret. So when I really am delivered, I can't live my life regretting that past. I got to move on. I got to pick up. I got to believe what God says. If he said he removed it from me, it's no longer part of me. I shouldn't keep pretending it is. That's, that's an offense to God. Right? That's, a, that's, a, that's more of an offense to God than it is an offense to me. Right? He's removed it from me. If he removed it from me, it's not part of me anymore. So I've got, to, I've got to live that way. Now, look at the next thing that he says. He says, but the sorrow of the world produces death. That means if I stay in that sorrow, it's not God. Because God, God, the godly sorrow leads to repentance. That's the point of it. If I'm just staying in that sorrow, it will lead to death. I don't need death in my life. God doesn't work with death. God is a God of life. So anyways, maybe that's what that looks like to you. Maybe for you, repent is just a really quick pop up. Here's my confession. Here's my absolvance. Here's my Hail Marys or whatever. There, I'm done. Probably not, but maybe that's your thing. But for me, repentance is not just a duty. It's not an obligation. It's not just an act. It's a gift from God. He's granting you repentance. He's granting you restoration. He's granting that your heart would be turned again. Right? Let me tell you how I know that. Because he says, straight up, it says, there's, you look in the book of Acts, they talk about it. You look at Paul writing to Timothy, he talks about it. He says, God has granted the Gentiles repentance. He's offered them repentance. And when he writes to Timothy, he said, you need to pray for these people. They have fallen so far off the bandwagon. Pray for them that God would, perhaps God would grant them repentance, leading to deliverance from this issue. It says, the Bible says in the New Testament that Cain sought repentance with tears and never found it. So it tells me tears aren't what God's looking for. If tears were what God's looking for, now maybe, when, maybe through repentance you cried, that's fine. But that's not, you know, that's not the rain that waters the crop that God's looking for. That's not, God's not looking for your sadness, he's looking for a turning back to him. I said the two things that God's looking for in restoring our hearts, what God is wanting to do in your heart, is he wants to soften your heart and he wants to turn your heart. Jesus said this, he said if their hearts were soft, he said this to his disciples, he said their eyes are closed, their ears are closed, their hearts are hard, but if they would open their eyes, 
If they would open their ears, if they would open their hearts, they would see, they would hear, they would understand, and then listen what he says. They would turn, and I would heal them. So many of us are looking for healing from all the brokenness in our life. We come to Jesus and we come messed up. Every single one of us came messed up to Jesus. Every single one of us brought our brokenness to the cross and said, God, I don't know what you're going to do with this, but here it is. And he has healing. He is healing for you. Whether that's physically, emotionally, spiritually, he's the healer. But healing begins when we turn towards Jesus. Now, many of us know how to turn towards him when we need physical healing, right? I physically walked down the aisle. I physically went to someone and said, can you pray for me? But what are you doing when your heart's so broken and, and stubborn and bitter and you don't know what to do? Is It may not be walking down and have someone pray for you. That may help. But, but what might be the biggest thing in your life is to let your heart turn back to God and let him soften it. And the danger, we think, is if God, if you soften my heart, people will hurt me again. If you soften my heart, uh, uh, I won't be as strong. If you soften my heart, then, uh, then I have to let those people, I have to forgive. I have to love people I don't want to love. But if you soften my heart, all of that will happen. And he goes, yes, but I'm the guardian of your soul. Yes, but I'm the healer of your heart. Watch what I do with it. There's a lie out there that says, that whatever God wants to do in your life, he'll just do. But the Bible doesn't back that up. It says that there's a part you need to play. There's a reason Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He said, I wish, I wish. Listen, if it was God's will, Jesus just told you what the Father's will was, that they would turn towards him. But they didn't. They turned their backs to him. He, he wept over Jerusalem and said, how I wish I could have gathered you. Yeah. Well, why in the world can't you just gather us, Jesus? You know what? If you have to give me chloroform, whatever spiritual chloroform is, knock me out, drag me where they want me to be. God, will you do that for me? Knock me out and just, just, just put me where I need to be. But he says, no, you have to come. Jesus constantly walks around telling people, follow me. The crazy thing is most of the people said no. At the end of the day, only a few people followed him. Can you imagine an invitation like that? Follow me, follow me, follow me. You, follow me. And people are like, well, I got stuff. I have a job. I've got a life. How many of you believe that following Jesus is going to be the most convenient thing in your life? Because, <laughs> I, I, you know, have fun with that. But that's not true. But it's wonderful. And so when he says this, he's going to turn. He's a forerunner before Jesus. I believe that before every great thing God does in our midst, there are forerunner, there are things he says to prepare us, and there are things he does to prepare us. I'll turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I love the song, and we'll maybe talk about it a little bit more later, but I love Joy to the World. I love Joy to the World because my favorite line in that song is, let every heart prepare him room. It's probably more needed now than, than I can think of any point in history because our hearts are so crowded. Our lives are so crowded. Let every heart prepare him room. I believe that God gives us 
and grants us repentance. He says, here's the way back. Here you go, turn back. Just turn your heart back. Turn and face me and I'll heal you. Let your heart be soft and you'll understand things that I, I want to show you. Let your eyes be open and you'll see things I want to show you. You'll hear things when your ears are open that I want to tell you. I want to ask you something that I know we've talked about before, but when Jesus was born, think of the people that showed up. Think of the people that met baby Jesus. Because you know what? Adult Jesus, he's easy to meet. He's walking around village to village. He's healing people. He's doing dramatic stuff. But baby Jesus is not so easy to meet. Baby Jesus is just a baby. Baby Jesus wasn't doing miracles. And if that's the book you have, your book's wrong. I know there's books that say he was like making little like clay pigeons and but I don't believe that. So here Jesus is. At least, you know what, you can believe the clay pigeon story if, if, I can, if I can believe that he didn't do any miracles as a baby. Okay, he wasn't like, my diapers changed, mom. Miracle. <laughs> I love this kid. Awesome. It's just amazing. We don't have to give him swimming lessons. He just walks around on top of it. He's amazing. <laughs> Coolest kid. Stop spitting in the mud and rubbing it in your brother's eyes. I don't. I know he doesn't need glasses anymore, but still, it's gross. Baby Jesus, you had to be aware of something to go, to go looking for him. Because baby Jesus wasn't looking for you. You had to be looking for him. First people that show up are shepherds who are told by angels. Another group that we see is when Jesus goes to the temple, there's an old man named Simeon waiting. And the Bible tells us that he'd been waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he'd been waiting for the Messiah. What gives a man the right to believe that the Messiah is going to come in his lifetime when they've been talking about it for over a thousand years? But God promises him, you're going to see him before you die. It's the last thing he sees before he dies. In fact, when he holds baby Jesus, he says this, now I can die. I've asked this before, but I'll ask it again. How many of you would be okay seeing the promise that you've been waiting for all your life if, it were, if you knew that that promise, you'd get it right before you died? You'd see it right before you died. What about Anna? prophetess at the temple. She's an old woman who every day goes to the temple to pray. And she sees Jesus and she prophesies over him. And she, or she, she worships him. And then she goes back to her friends who are looking for the same thing. So here's what I want to ask you. Why is it that there are old people who've been looking for the Messiah all their lives and their hearts aren't hardened yet? Right? Because I've talked to people that left church and they said, I was praying for something. Where's God? I've been praying for something for a year. And, and we're frustrated with God. We've been praying for something for a week. Where's the answer? These people were looking for something all their lives and yet they're still soft. They're still not hard towards God. They're still, they're still expectant. They're still ready. How does that happen? How do you keep that? How does Abraham keep his heart right when it's decades before he sees God's promise? The Bible says that he grew strong in the faith, giving glory to God. Somehow, 
There's a part of him that says, I don't know the timing, but I know God is good. I don't know the, I don't know the, the, the method, but I know that he is able and he is willing. So just like I followed him out of my hometown, not knowing where I was going, I'll follow him in this promise. What about those really educated guys from out east? Whether they were astrologers or some sort of religious scholars, either way they're looking at the sky at the right time. The Bible says they were Magi, which you might not remember, but Daniel, when the Israelites were moved to Babylon and the Persians came, Daniel was made the chief of the Magi. He was, he was put in charge of those wise men. Hundreds of years later, somehow their version of what a wise man looked like, which was a, a, a pagan, Babylonian, Persian, Eastern thing, had got a little bit of the Hebrew scriptures mixed in with it. And maybe even a little bit of that scripture where Balaam prophesied that a star would rise and signified the coming of the Son of God, the coming, coming of the Messiah. Maybe that leaked down and those guys are looking and they show up. So here we, all, all of our little barriers, we think, you know, if you're too educated, it's hard to believe. If you have too much education, it's hard to have faith. These guys were the most educated. We tell ourselves, you know, young people, ah, they're full of vim and vigor. They'll believe anything, but old people, they're jaded, they're bitter, they're crusty. Uh-uh, it was old people waiting for Jesus. It was an old man who got the prophecy about John the Baptist. It was an old woman who had uh, her kid leap inside of her womb just in the presence of Mary. It was an old man meeting them at the temple. It was an old woman meeting them at the temple. And so don't believe that time can steal your faith. Don't believe that time can harden your heart. Your heart can actually get softer the more you're waiting. And if it's not there now, I want to I tell you, God is granting to you the same promise he promised us from the beginning. I'll take a hard heart and I'll make it a soft heart. I'll take a stone heart and I'll make it a fleshly heart, a flesh heart. I'll make it a, a, a heart that can be used. Believe that God wants us to turn back. So here's my story. And most of you know I've, I've said it in different ways, but I knew how to be in church and sit right there and sing the right words and say the right verses. But there was a point in my life where my heart, I didn't go off and kill somebody. I didn't go off and, 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 and do things that were outwardly evil. But my heart had grown a little cold, had gone distant from God. And I remember the frustration. And let me tell you some of the signs of it. I didn't want to hear the word being preached anymore. I didn't enjoy it. I got bored with it real easy. You might say, well, that's because you were young and well, it wasn't relevant preaching and what didn't have enough pictures. <laughs> it wasn't Twitter quotable. Well, Twitter wasn't around then because I'm old. But <laughs> it was, puppets wouldn't have helped. You know, I got to the point where because my heart was hard, I couldn't hear anymore. I would get frustrated, you know? I remember, I remember trying 
to do the right things, trying to, trying to, to do the spiritual religious things but not feeling it. And yet at those times there were many, many moments where I would hear the voice of God and there'd be a drawing back and there'd be a calling back. There'd be moments in my heart where my heart never really got fully cold because there were moments where God would just like throw a fireball at it for a minute. And many of you know the story of, of what I asked God. I said, God, I'm not hungry, but I'm hungry to be hungry. I want that. I started to look at people that were on fire, and there was no, no reason that they should be. Why in the world are they excited about Jesus? Are they faking it, or are they real? And he knew they weren't faking it, because if you're faking it, you'd at least make yourself look better. <laughs> I mean, you'd at least learn to dance or something. So I want that then. And God granted me my request. And there were instants that were quick, like a service where something really lit on fire, but there was a gradual reforming and reshaping of my heart. We forget that the prophet, the psalmist who said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. He said that when he thought God was very far away. And he missed him. He said, my soul pants for you because he hadn't felt the presence of God in a long time. He had to ask himself, why is my soul so downcast? I want you to ask yourself the honest questions. You could be doing the religious stuff just like the Pharisees did. You could do all the right things and go all the right church events and, and say all the right things. But what God's really after is your heart. He's after you. He's after the core of who you are. He wants you to love, love him with everything. And if John the Baptist stood in this room, I hope he wouldn't yell at me. <laughs> I hope he'd let me get baptized. But the good news is this. I'm on this side of the cross. And Jesus said that I'm greater than John the Baptist because of what's been granted to me. That no longer... Do I have to ask God, God, would you maybe one more time forgive me and give me a soft heart? But now, because of Jesus, because of the spirit living inside of me, I've been promised a new heart. I've been given a new spirit. And I, I can let that heart get hard or I can let God keep softening it. But I want you to know that healing is when we turn. Healing is when our hearts are soft again. And when your hearts are soft and when your hearts turn, there's restoration, there's life, there's healing, there's everything you've been asking for. A sign of a hard heart might be that we just want to stay where we are. We want to tell stories about the past, but we don't want to find stories in the future. We just want to stay stuck. But a heart that's alive, a heart that's awake, a heart that's reinvigorated, it's looking for what God's doing. It's excited about what God's doing. It's saying, Lord, do it in me. Today, I want you to know you can be restored. You get that passion. Get that life back. Repentance is a gift of God. Repentance doesn't always mean that you just say, I know I'm terrible. I wish I was better. Repentance means you turn back. You turn to God. That's where life is. You know, T and I were talking in the office before the service about why we do what we do. She said, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you giving? Why are we serving? 
Because if we're doing it because that's what we think we should do, there's probably honor in that. But there's a, there's a promise attached to giving out of faith. There's a promise attached to giving out of love. Paul said, if I do it, he said, I have no choice but to preach the gospel. But if I do it freely, I'll get a reward. You don't have to go the rest of your life going through the motions. You can, you can be alive and awake. Let's prepare room in our hearts for what God's doing. Let's prepare, let's prepare room in our hearts for, for what he's saying to us today. And, and I want you to stand with me. We're going to pray together.